instead of counting to 10 to test audio, I like to give our guests five or 10 things to rattle off. So for you, all will be revealed a bit later as to why I chose this challenge for you, for the listener, but name five dishes or cooking techniques one can do in a walk. Oh, okay. Stir frying, braising, simmering, steaming, and uh, deep frying. Great. Got it. You sound good. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, this episode is brought to you by us, our merchandise, otherwise known as merch. Heard. Hi, Ian. Everyone, our executive producer, Ian. Hey, Cappy. Is this the same merch? That I see Jacques Papin wearing on his Instagram? Why, yes, it is, Ian. Same merch, Wolfgang Puck has, and Michael Simon, and Rachel Wright, Yes, 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 yes. Wait, wait, and me. Yes, 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 Ian. It's the same merch. We are a little biased, but we love our merch, and apparently other people do too. So if you want to check out our super soft t-shirts and hoodies and hats, all you have to do is go to beyondtheplatemerch.com. We'll also link to it in the podcast player that you are currently listening on right now. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. Enjoy this week's episode. I think that was perfect. I kind of like that we did that. <laughs> that was great. That was actually great. <laughs> yeah. All right, go pick up your kids. Today's guest is a chef, a dad of two, and a New York Times bestselling author of The Food Lab, a book which won a James Beard Award for General Cooking and an International Association of Culinary Professionals Award for Book of the Year. He's also the author of one of my kids' favorite books, Every Night is Pizza Night, with illustrations by Gian Ruggiero. He's an extremely popular New York Times food columnist and the host of Kenji's Cooking Show with over a million subscribers on YouTube. As if that's not enough, he's an MIT graduate. Didn't see that coming, did you? Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a man who is definitely one of my most trusted culinary resources, Chef J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Hello, sir. How's it going? Doing well, thank you. <laughs> thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Ed Levine, founder of SeriousEats.com, said you're the most important recipe developer to come along in a generation. <laughs> How do you feel when you hear that? <laughs> oh, I think, oh, Ed. Well, first of all, Ed, as the founder of SeriousEats.com and my employer at the time, had some economic uh, motivation to say things like that. But moreover, you know, I think, uh, you know, Ed is kind of like, he's like family. You know, I, I, I feel like he often feels about me like a proud father, you know. <laughs> His wife is my agent, is my book agent, and we are very good friends. And <laughs> If he says so, I, I just take it the way like a, a mom at their kid's violin recitals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but the compliments don't stop there. So Iron Chef Alex Guarnaschale, friend of the podcast, said this about your book, The Food Lab. She said, this opus is a kitchen necessity. I'm putting mine on the shelf right next to my Julia Child book. <laughs> Well, listen, it's all nepotism again. Her her mom was my editor. No way. You can't trust her either. Oh, yeah. my God. That's incredible. Can't trust any of these people. Okay. How about <laughs> Boston chef Tony Moss? He said every time he thinks he's an expert on an ingredient, a dish, or a technique, he's inevitably schooled all over again after reading your thorough and detailed writing. So let's jump in here. What do you? I got engaged at Tony's restaurant. By the way. <laughs> so again, it's just friends helping each other out. I love you know, it. All of, it is, all of it is lies. But what do you think is the secret ingredient to the success of that book, The Food Lab? Why do you think people love it so much? I think a couple things. Part of it, I think, is the subject matter and the way I approached it. Because for me, it's like my mom moved to the U.S. when she was a teenager. She's Japanese, and my dad is from Western Pennsylvania. He's American, but my you know my dad, very hardworking guy, was always working. And my mom, as a Japanese mother to American kids or to Japanese American kids like she often she tried very hard to not just do traditional Japanese food at home so she also wanted to introduce us to American food and get us more used to eating things that other people around here do so the, the point is that like I didn't grow up with family recipes you know I didn't grow up sitting in the kitchen with my mom cooking dishes from the old country the way like a lot of older generations of kids did and like home cooks did. They learned their recipes from their parents and they continued to cook them. So I didn't grow up cooking at all. So when I did start cooking, 
in college, I started cooking actually after I got my first cooking job at a restaurant. But when I did start cooking for myself and for other people, I didn't have this like bank of recipes or experiences or cultural experiences to draw upon. And so for me, a lot of learning how to cook was learning from first principles and learning the basics. And, you know, in some ways I was limited because I didn't have any experience, but in other ways it was very open. It was, this was like at the dawn of the internet. And so you could start finding recipes from other cultures. You could start seeing videos of chefs and home cooks from other countries cooking. You started having better access to ingredients. So my approach to cooking was very much like learning from a techniques-based approach and then trying to recreate dishes I liked at restaurants and things like that. For a lot of people, I think my age, you know, I'm, I'm 42 now. So I think for a lot of people in my generation, for whatever reason, I think more, most often it's probably because they had two working parents and so didn't grow up cooking at home that much. There was this whole, like a big generation of people who never learned how to cook from a cultural perspective or from their parents. And so the idea of learning how to cook from techniques and through understanding of science, I think was appealing to a lot of people then. And, you know, and I think also what it made the book appealing is like, you know, I, I consider my skill, you know, I'm not the best chef or cook in the world. I am certainly not like a capital S scientist. I think what my sort of general skill, the thing I'm good at is, is communicating, understanding scientific concepts and communicating them in ways that stick in people's heads that are unintimidating and get them to understand concepts without having to actually go into the nitty gritty math and details that, you know, that real science often is. So I think it's that those combinations, like being in sort of in the right place at the right time for the right audience, and then that ability to communicate in a way that I think speaks to non-scientists who are interested in science. Yeah, that's so funny. I was talking to a friend the other day in Austin and her boyfriend is like a cowboy-esque type, I guess I'll say. And she's not super into food, doesn't cook at all. It's the one book he has. Like, I'm always so interested who and why type thing. But what you just explained was it's you and it's not on. I mean, I think that's I think that's cool. You know, it's like I buy and read books, you know, nonfiction books on subjects that I'm never it's like, you know, like I, I just read a book on aviation. It's like I'm never going to build a plane, but it's cool to know how they work. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. Good point. So before you dig deeper into your journey, I'm curious. And you almost stated this, but like if you had a personal mission statement for yourself, what would that be? For myself, like something that guides my personal life, it would be to not stop learning. You know, for me, my career has always been a series of like examining where I am in my life. I'm not the kind of person that thinks five years ahead, but I do think, am I happy with what I'm doing right now? Am I learning? And that, that usually that's what it comes down to. It's like, am I stuck in the same rut doing the same, doing something that I'm good at and then I know how to do over and over and over again? Or am I picking up new skills? Am I learning new things? And for me, yeah, I find that the more I'm learning and the more new skills I'm picking up, generally the more satisfied I am with my life, whether I'm getting paid to do it or not. And and I also find that I generally, ever since middle school, I've known that like I do, I work hardest and I do my best work on things that I'm really interested in and passionate about. I find career-wise, as long as I'm keeping myself interested and focused and passionate about a project, then the career success comes with that. Like I, I don't worry too much about, oh, is this going to lead to, you know, I don't, I don't look so far down the path and think, is this going to lead to like a lucrative deal in the future or whatever? I think more about is what I'm doing right now quality work and, and am I passionate about doing it? And I found luckily that like, Certainly like personal satisfaction and, you know, happiness in your own life comes with keeping yourself passionate and, and doing what you consider to be quality work. And generally that also tends to go hand in hand with what's going to be, what's going to resonate with an audience and what's going to bring you sort of career success. Yeah. Love that. So you mentioned your mother is Japanese, your father uh, is American. Take a step back. I'm sure you've told this a hundred times, but for the listener or new listener, can you describe the background and meaning of your name? My full name? Yeah. Yeah. So the, I go by J Kenji Lopez. All the J stands for James, but when, by basically like by the time I was in kindergarten, I asked people to call me Kenji. So I've never used James. I mean, my parents never, even when I was a little kid, never called me James. James uh, kind of got folded away. And then I don't know why I started adding the J. I think it was, I don't, I don't know. It's when I started writing professionally and I'm like, I guess I should have like my actual name in there, but nobody calls me James. So I just stuck the J in then. So for a while I was J Kenji Alt, like when I was writing at Cook's Illustrated. And then I got married and my wife is Colombian and she's Adriana Lopez. And so we both changed our names to Lopez Alt. So I'm not in any way Colombian or Latin, but my wife and I took each other's names. Nice. 
Like, what did the Alt family table look like as a kid? Okay, so we lived in an apartment building in, in New York, Morningside Heights. We lived on 10J. My maternal grandparents lived on 9J, so one floor below us. My first language at home was actually Japanese because my, my grandparents are Japanese. My grandmother didn't really speak any English at all. I and mean, so we grew up, my dad worked a lot. He was around and we spent a lot of time with him on weekends, but he worked and still works very hard. What's his line of work? He's an immunologist, a microbiologist. I'm sure he's working very hard right now. Yeah, COVID has everybody has everybody working right now. Yeah, Everybody in that field for sure. So my mom cooked dinner for us virtually every day. And so meals were always like me. At the very minimum, it was me, my two sisters, my mom. Often my grandmother was there too. And then often my dad was there when he wasn't working. But we did have meals at the table every day. And my mom was very much one of those, I'm going to put stuff on your plate. You can't leave the table until you're finished with this type person, which was not the way I treat my own kid now. And not the way I, not the way I raise my own kid to eat now. But that's, I think a lot of people that generation did it that way. And as I said, you know, my mom would do, sometimes would do Japanese food. Um, my grandmother would sometimes cook Japanese food, home cooking. But more often than not, she would be cooking Betty Crocker type stuff. Betty Crocker, like New York Times recipe section stuff. When my dad cooked, his particular interests were Chinese food and Mexican food. My dad, maybe once or twice a month, he would cook dinner and it was always like some kind of elaborate Chinese or Mexican feast. Those are actually my favorite days because those are still like two of my favorite cuisines. So, you know, my mom, I think she did not love cooking and she still doesn't love cooking. So basically, as soon as the kids moved out of the house, she stopped cooking. She still cooks herself sometimes, but she may, basically saw it as like sitting around the table. Well, first of all, it's like it was economical, right? It's not, it doesn't make sense to order food in all the time. And my parents couldn't, I would not have been able to do that. But I think she also saw the value in having set meal times and having the whole family around the table, even if we were like a very dysfunctional family, having a, a, the whole family around the table was important. And so she cooked basically for those reasons. And she wasn't a great cook and the food we ate growing up was not great. <laughs> were you into it? There, there were some things that she was, the Japanese food was generally good. My favorite thing growing up was my mom's gyoza, like dumplings. What she would do is she would make the filling, which she made with ground beef. So we lived in Morningside Heights. And at the time, uh, 125th Street or to 132nd Street, that was all like a little meat packing area up there. So there were a lot of like butchers and meat packers. And, and oftentimes there were people like selling like black market meat. Uh, so you'd be driving and stop at the intersection of like by the Cotton Club on 125th and Riverside and a guy would come over to your window with a cooler full of meat and sell you steaks for a dollar or like you're like a five pound brick of ground beef for a dollar. So that's what my mom would buy beef there sometimes. And so I just remember we always have like a ton of ground beef at home and some of it would get used to make, you know, Italian, like Betty Crocker meat sauce, spaghetti and meat sauce. And then the rest she would use to make dumpling filling, gyoza filling. And so she would make the filling and then me and my sisters would basically sit in front of the TV and fold dumplings. Like once a month or so, we would make dumplings and freeze them. How old were you? I probably from started when I was like, I don't know, seven years old, really? or eight years old until I was a teenager. Was, Is that like the first thing you cooked more or less? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even cook them. You know, it was, it was just, I, I just wrapping them. Yeah, so it was like doing origami, you know. Okay, so we usually like to gather this information from a guest's childhood to see how that may have shaped who they are today, but your, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, your first foray into food really wasn't until you were in college. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wasn't like that interested in eating. You know, I enjoyed going, like my dad, what he loved to do was to go out and find good Chinese restaurants. And so like we would do that, like go around Chinatown in New York and try and find good food. So I enjoyed doing that, but I, but I wasn't really that into food. Like I remember in my sophomore year of college, I had a, a girlfriend whose parents took us out to dinner to this like fancy restaurant, Radius in Boston, Michael Schlau's restaurant. And, and so they, the three of them ordered a tasting menu and I saw what was coming on the tasting menu. I was like, I don't want fish. I don't want this vegetable I've never heard of. And so I just ordered a steak, which is like the most boring thing you can order at a, at a fancy restaurant, right? Yeah, they, I remember that. They were sitting there eating like this nine course thing and I just had the steak and I was like, okay, that's fine. The summer after that, after my sophomore year, I got a job cooking for the first time, which was just a complete accident. The summer before that, I, in the summer after my freshman year and in, and in high school a bit, I'd worked in biology labs and I sort of had this like existential crisis sophomore year of college where I was like, what am I doing? I don't actually like working in biology labs. And if I keep going down this career path, I'm going to be stuck doing this forever or at least for decades. And so that summer I decided like, all right, I'm not going to do biology. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to take the summer off. 
to just like hang out, figure out what I want to do. And so I was like, I need to make money. So I went and was looking for a job as a server. And then it just happened that one of the restaurants I walked into, they said like they had a, a prep cook who didn't show up that day. And that if I could come that afternoon and start working in the kitchen, they could show me what to do. And I could have a job as a cook for the summer. And I was like, all right, that's something new. I'll try that. And so I started cooking that day and have worked in the industry ever since then. Yeah. So take us through some highlights of your culinary or cooking journey after that first job in college? Let's see. So my first job after college was at a grilled pizza restaurant called Cambridge One, which very recently closed, actually. They closed over pandemic. So they were around for a good 20 years or so. But I spent um, a few months working as a guy who grilled pizza and stretched out pizza dough and did that kind of stuff. And then from there, I went sort of into fine dining. So I went and got a job working for Barbara Lynch in Boston. So her restaurant was number nine park. So, you know, that job, I, I walked in between lunch and dinner service one afternoon and I told the chef there at the time, the chef de cuisine, who's uh, Dave Bazargant, that I wanted to learn how to cook and I would <laughs> do whatever it takes. And so I got a job there. $9 an hour was the pay at the time. Uh, and I think it was the pay that I started with and the pay that I left with. Did you go there because you knew you wanted other experience or you wanted to learn other technique or cuisine? Yeah. You know, it's like when I, when I started cooking, I, like my first restaurant job was at like a Mongolian grill. You know, it was a called, place called Fire and Ice where people like an all you can eat type place where I did a, like a giant cast iron slab in the center of the room and, you know, put on a show. You pour, people put raw meat and stuff in bowl, like something that doesn't work in pandemic anymore. But like people put like pick up bowls, of, there's like a raw meat bar and a vegetable bar and they bring it all to you and then you just stir fry it. You know, it's not really cooking. It's more just kind of putting on a show. But I mean, you've been in the industry. So once you've cooked in a restaurant, like you find that at least the day-to-day the -day mechanical labor of cooking is relatively similar, whether you're at a high-end restaurant or low-end, you know, a fast food place or whatever. It's still a lot of it is still just repetition and consistency and following protocols and, and hustling and working fast and working clean no matter where you are. And so if you enjoy that experience, you know, I enjoyed that experience at Fire and Ice. So you have to enjoy that aspect, that it's a sort of repetitive element and that sort of, you, you get into like this mental state where a mental flow, whatever it's called, in the middle of service where you just feel like you're on all the time and one action leads to the other. And days when you're on, it feels great, right? It's like this adrenaline high where it's like, I can do anything. Like I've got 12 arms, I can do whatever you want. And so that feeling I think is the same no matter what kind of restaurant you're working at as long as it's busy. You know, the thing that's different of course is that you learn more advanced techniques, you work with different quality ingredients you work with more creative or smarter chefs and things like that. So for me, as soon as I got to the point where I didn't have to think at all about what I was doing, as soon as I got to the point where I felt like I wasn't learning a new skill, then it seemed like it was time to move on to another job. You know, and, and restaurants have generally high turnover anyway. You know, so I, so I worked in like, yeah, fine dining, like Italian, you know, Barbara Lynch's was Italian. And then she opened up uh, an oyster bar. So I spent a summer as an oyster shucker. And then I spent like another few months on the fry station, like frying, you know, doing New England style fried seafood, like fried oysters, fried clams, all that stuff that I love. Then I went and worked with Ken Oranger for a while. So he had a, his flagship restaurant, Clio, closed a couple of years ago, but that was like modernist, fine dining, French technique, a lot of Asian flavors, gels and foams and all that kind of encapsulated stuff that was cool for a while. Right around then, while, while I was working there was when like sous vide started becoming popular. I like actually, yeah, I talked to my dad about sourcing lab equipment so that we could cook in the kitchen there because nobody was making sous vide equipment specifically for, for kitchens then. It was all lab equipment, like repurposed lab equipment. Did some sashimi and sushi for a while, worked at a Spanish restaurant. And then, you know, and eventually I, I decided, I thought, you know, what am I going to do as a restaurant cook for the rest of my life? Like I could try and open a restaurant or could do this thing. A friend of mine saw a an ad in the newspaper back when people still put like classifies in the newspaper hiring test cooks for Cooks Illustrated, which is, which is when I was living in Boston, still this is in Brookline. They have a testing kitchens in Brookline. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, for me, it's like I have Coming from a background where my father's a scientist, my grandfather's a scientist, and science sort of scientific literacy and a scientific approach to thinking was just sort of part of my upbringing. And so when I was working in kitchens, especially back then, the attitude was like, well, why are we doing this? Don't ask why we're doing it. Like, we're doing it because that's the way it's done. Like, because that's what the chef said. That's what the chef wants it. That's how you do it. And there wasn't really time to ask why we're doing this or ask, is there a better way to do this? Blah, blah, blah. And so I, 
I had a lot of questions about like why things were cooked a certain way. And so to me, when I saw this ad as a test cook at Cooks Illustrated, and I looked a little bit at what Cooks Illustrated does, I, I wasn't really familiar with the magazine before I saw that ad. But when I saw what they do, it's like, oh, they test things. This seems like the kind of perfect fun job for me. I'll go check it out. That was my first writing and recipe development job. And my career has sort of just you know steadily gone down that same path since then. Got it. God, there's so many great points you just hit within that from experience to questioning why something works a certain way. I'm thinking about back when I was in kitchens and asking questions because sometimes these chefs are just or line cooks are like robots and they learn to make a dish and they could kick ass and make a great dish consistent 50 times a night or whatever. But if they don't know why, like the purpose of an ingredient or technique within that dish, where are you going? Like, where's your growth in a way? I don't know. I think that's extremely interesting. And you give some great examples of that in, in a lot of your writing. I think that's a hugely important for someone coming up in the industry. Yeah. And I think the industry has definitely shifted a lot in the last 20 years since I started cooking. And I think the attitude in kitchens, first of all, like the way people treat each other in kitchens has changed for the better. People, I think, communicate better and talk more. And there's more open communication between, there's less of this old French brigades system where there's like this, there is still a strict hierarchy, of course, but I think there's a lot more respect and a lot more openness towards talking about why things are done as opposed to just like barking orders and following them, which I think is great. There's also extreme value, of course, in a restaurant, you know, like in a restaurant, consistency and speed are, of course, the most important things, right? Because it's like, you got a customer waiting out on the other side of those doors. They don't care if you want to have a conversation about why you're frying your potatoes three times or whatever. They just want to have the dish in front of them and they want to have it the same way they had it the last time. In a restaurant, that's, that is what's important. When I say in a restaurant, you don't have time to ask these questions, that's not necessarily meant as a knock against restaurants. That's, that's just the way, that's just the nature of the industry and, and, and the specific parameters of running a business like that. But I do think it's cool that a lot of chefs now have like development kitchens or spend more time working with their crew on ideas, which is yeah, it's great. For me, the analogy I use in my new cookbook, In the Walk, at the beginning, I talk about the difference between recipes and techniques, um, and which I think is sort of analogous to working in a restaurant, following orders versus having the time to explore things more. But to me, like a recipe is more like if I want to get from my house to the post office, like I can pull up my phone and say, take me to the post office. And then I could literally like just keep my phone in front of my face walk to the office and have it tell me which way to turn each time I get to an intersection and I'll be able to get to the post office. But I won't really understand the general landscape of the neighborhood. I won't know what the side, where the side streets are. I won't really know how I got to the post office. I just know that I got there. And so if my only goal is to like get to the post office every day, that's all right. But then like one day, what if one of these streets is closed and I can't take that same route or what if it's snowing or whatever, you know? And so you run into these things. It's like, I'm cooking the same dish, but what if like, I don't have this ingredient this time? Or what if I'm cooking at someone else's house and their pots are a little different or their burners are a little bit different? You know, at that point, understanding technique and understanding why you're doing things, to me, that's more like handing someone a map and saying, this is you, like, this is the post office. Here's a suggested route. You can follow that route if you want. But if you want to go a different route, if you want to explore the area more, like that's what understanding techniques and understanding how ingredients work together and how different techniques work together um, offers you as a cook. It allows you to really set your own destination, set your own goals, and I think make your your food a lot more personal to what, you know, you, you can decide this is what I want to do today and you would, and you have a good idea of how you're going to do that even without being given the direct step-by-step uh, directions to do it. I think that's great. And we're definitely going to jump into the walk book shortly. Who did you look up to back then in the culinary world? I would say, so Jacques Pepin has always been like, I think probably one of my biggest culinary inspirations, not necessarily for the food, you know, because I have an interest in French cuisine, but not like an extraordinarily strong interest in it, but much more for his sort of um, approach to education and his focus on teaching people and also like his real non-judgmental attitude, you know, because like he's like a great chef and he can cook side to side with some of the greatest, most egotistical chefs in the world. But he's never egotistical. And I think he has this very good understanding that like, just because he can do something a certain way doesn't mean that a home cook has to be able to do that or that a home cook necessarily should do that. And so I think it's great that his video, which I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has seen of making omelets, right? 
he shows you like, here's like a fancy French omelet. This is the way, like no color. It requires a lot of technique. You stir the eggs like this. There's like, it has this perfectly soft custardy texture on the inside. It's golden. It's this perfect torpedo sheet. That's how you make a French omelet. Here's another type of omelet that's brown on the outside. It's got some loose curds. You can stuff it with whatever you want. And here's how I would make that. It's much easier to make. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other or one is superior to the other. It's just two different ways of cooking eggs. And depending on what you're in the mood for or who, who you're cooking for or, or what your skill level is, um, you can make one or the other. And it, it doesn't mean you're a worse cook or a better cook, which I think is a really good attitude and, and something that I try and keep in mind, which is, which is difficult, you know, because as, as a, you know, working in restaurants for a number of years, like the attitude in restaurants is quite different. It's a very sort of macho competitive space, which I think rubbed off on me long term in a bad way. First of all, I think it's just bad in general that restaurants were that way. And some of them still are that way. Sort of abusive places that are that value. Yeah, just not very supportive places and abusive, abusive places. And so having been in that world for a long time, I, I found myself just like being kind of a dick in real life, which I think happens to a lot of restaurant people and you become judgy and snappy. And, and it's like, why are you doing this way? Why are you doing? Why are you going so slow? Or I'm in the supermarket. It's like, all I can think is like, just, all right, just pick the fucking peanut butter. I want to get by. And so unlearning all that stuff has been a process and, and it's still an ongoing process. But I do. Yeah. So like, you know, Jacques Pepin to me, it's like someone who lived in that world, but is still has such an easy demeanor and such a non-judgmental demeanor really makes me uh, admire him. That's interesting. And for what it's worth, I, I kind of hear that in, in your writing voice when I see you write things and post things on social media, whether you're talking about a teriyaki place in Seattle or a bagel place or whatever it is. When you give your point of view, you're not putting someone down that this is the only bagel like that you need to yeah. eat. You kind of get your <laughs> two cents on on what it is you like and why. And it's cool if you like something else. I try and do that. You know, and, and I if you look at what I used to write 10 years ago versus now, it's also quite different. Also being a father now for almost five years has also, you know, significantly changed the way I interact with people because you realize, oh, like you're raising another human being and the way you you behave is going to reflect on their attitude towards the world. So you you better be your best possible self and not be like your uh you know your I, I always find like, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they make you your worst possible self. At least for me, they did, which is why I quit Facebook and Twitter. But having kids does the opposite or should do the opposite. Yeah, no, I agree. How about now? Are there any people that you admire now in the industry? I mean, I'm sure there are, but... Still Jacques Pepin, he's still around and he's, and he's still doing great stuff. I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't follow, I don't stay too in, that in tune with the industry. Like these days, I spend a lot of time with my kids and I spend time cooking at home. I don't, I don't, I'm not that widely read in, 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 in what's going on in the industry these days. When I moved to Seattle like a year ago, for instance, I, I wanted to find that, figure out what's going on around here and the restaurant scene and what, what's good to eat and stuff. And when I do that, you know, I do a little bit of research into the people behind a restaurant. I think as, as someone who has some amount of influence over where other people are are going to check out and, and eat like you want to make sure that not only is like the food good but that that the people and the restaurants you're supporting are also good community citizens and good citizens of the world but i don't really follow individual media characters much i have this double awesome chinese food book is it did you recommend that i have recommended that i feel book, yeah. i'm like why do i have this on my desk i feel like you may have mentioned it in a video <laughs> or something now that i yeah uh let's see i i mean they're 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 based out of out of uh boston uh may make kitchen is their place so I, I went to i've been to the restaurant a couple times and i've interacted with irene and irene lee and her her, um, her her siblings who run the restaurant um on social media it was super random i just like i asked a question and then i like looked over and i had that book i was like did I hear about this book from him? Like, yeah, it's anyway. very possible. I have that book. Um, it's a great book, and they're and they're really nice people. Um, so, um, yeah, those are the kinds of people and books that I have no uh, that are here. Yeah, I have them right in front of me, right here. Yeah, that are <laughs> very easy to support. All right. So you mentioned Jacques Pepin. You mentioned eggs. Ironically enough, I recently spoke with Chef Jacques Pepin, and he wanted to ask you, "What is the me? Yeah, what is the most surprising thing you learned about perfecting the hard-boiled egg?" To me, the thing, the most surprising thing I've learned years ago, I did uh, like a series of tests on. All right, let me back up a little bit, actually. So. One of my first restaurant jobs, I actually at Number Nine Park for a while as the new guy there. They weren't open for breakfast, but everyone it was right on uh, right next to the the state house in in Boston, and so every once in a while, like politicians or something would want to have a 
breakfast there and they'd rent out the place and have breakfast. And so as like the new guy, I w- it was always my job to be in the kitchen for breakfast. And so I spent a lot of time boiling and peeling eggs. And for me, that was like always the biggest hassle was like, because you can't serve the eggs that are slightly messed up. And so on those days, like I would get about, you know, maybe 60 to 70% of them would be perfectly peeled and nice and clean. And then the rest of them would just, we would have like egg salad for egg salad sandwiches for family meal that day because they had like little divots and stuff in them. So for me, a lot, a lot of the goal of, of perfecting hard boiled eggs was about figuring out what makes an egg easy to peel versus hard to peel. And for a long time, I'd read that it's the age of the egg, that as eggs get older, the, the membrane that sticks to the, the surface of the white uh, weakens. And so they become easier to peel. And so I just assumed that was true. And then when I actually went and tested it, um, I first tested it at Serious Eats where I did it with 100 eggs or so. Um, I can't remember, or 100 something eggs. And I had a couple people basically blind peeling them. So I cooked the eggs using different methods. I gave people like 12 eggs, like three of each method or whatever, asked them to peel them. And then what we did was we both timed how long it took them to do it, uh, counted all the sort of imperfections on the surface of, the, of each egg, and then also had them do like a qualitative assessment of like how easy was a given egg to peel. And from that, I got all this data about what makes an egg easy to peel or not. And then years later, uh, maybe three or four years ago, I repeated this for a New York Times column. This time I did it with over a thousand eggs and we had a hundred volunteers from the public come in to, to my restaurant. And this is another reason, because at my restaurant, we were serving deviled eggs. And again, you can only serve the perfect egg. So I wanted to figure out like, all right, how do we like increase the odds of, of getting perfect eggs and just waste less eggs? And so we actually had 100 volunteers, public come into the restaurant over the course of the day and sit at like I sat there with all these volunteers who came in one at a time, peeled a bunch of eggs and did the same, basically the same thing. And what we found was that basically the only thing that matters, the age of the egg doesn't really matter whether you use like vinegar or baking soda or anything in the water doesn't really matter. The only thing that really matters is how hot the water is before you put the eggs in. So if you start your eggs in cold water, the eggs fuse to the shell and become very difficult to peel. But if you plunge them into already boiling water or a steamer full of already hot steam, then they are much easier to peel. And that's like the night and day difference. The data was very clear. And everything else is basically doesn't matter once you get those things right. I also want to say I'm very surprised that Jack Pepin <laughs> wanted to ask this because, so I mean, I've, so now I do some videos for the Jack Pepin Foundation and stuff. Yeah, I think he knows who I am now, but for years I would run into him at random, like he, he came into a restaurant I worked at a couple times. He even actually once, the first time, I remember the first time he came to the restaurant I worked at, I was making palm souffle, which are like these like puffy potato chips, basically. You fry potatoes, slice them with a certain thickness, fry them once, and you fry them again, and then the, the water vapor inside puffs up and it turns them into these kind of hollow, puffed up potato chips. So I was making those, which are a pain in the butt to make. And we served him. And then afterwards, my chef, Ken Oranger, he knew that like I was this huge Jack Pepin fan. He's like, Kenji, like, do you want to meet Chef Pepin? I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. And so we actually like Chef Pepin came like back to the kitchen, talked to me for a while. He asked me what, how my day was going and my, how my night was going. And I was, and I told him, well, I hope like your potato chip, like your palm souffle were good. Cause like I have a lot of difficulty with them. And he actually like sat there showed me how he sliced like he talked like he basically like gave me like a little private class like you know I was a line cook no reason for him to spend the time to do this but he did and I was just like blown away that this famous chef is here just teaching me like a nobody had a one-on-one how to do something that I was having trouble with so that always stuck with me and over the years I'd bumped into him at other events and other restaurants and stuff and and I just remember like every time I would have to reintroduce myself he would never remember me but now I think he finally does remember who I am sometimes that's so funny (laughs) okay how do you deal with obstacles in your work I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on the obstacle. But, you know, the, these days with my career, you know, I used to be much more competitive, especially career wise. It's like, you know, I, I used to care a lot about view numbers on my articles and and what other people thought of them and stuff. And these days, I feel like I'm in a place in my career where I've had as much success as I reasonably as anyone can reasonably expect to have in their career. You know, if my career continues to advance or whatever, then great. Uh, if not, I don't really care that much. Like I, I feel like I'm in a happy place in my life and I, and I want to focus, you know, my, my main goal in, in life for the last couple of years has basically been to de-stress and very specifically tell myself not to, to stop caring about the things that aren't re- ultimately going to affect my happiness. And so for me, like a lot of that learning process has been learning to say no when new opportunities come my way. And also like when challenges come along to think about whether it's important, like there's this obstacle in front of me. Okay. Like in some cases, then it's important 
to climb over that obstacle and, and keep going. In some cases, do I really need to be going down this path in the first place? Am I climbing this obstacle just so I can say I climbed this obstacle? Or am I actually going to be better off when I get to the end of this path? So part of it is just like learning what things are worth dealing with and what things aren't. And as someone who likes to spend a lot of time with my children, I find I would much rather say no to things and back off on projects and spend more time with my kids than be working all the time and not spend time with them just for whatever small incremental increase in my you know career success. You know, so for instance, like I do my YouTube channel, which I started a while back, but picked up during during the pandemic. You know, I found a moderate amount of success or a good amount of success there. But my rule when I started the channel was always like, as soon as this starts to feel like work or I feel like I'm worried about how many people are watching it or that I'm worried that like other people are getting more views or whatever, then like I'm going to stop. The only reason it works for me is because it's easy and it's fun for me. And, and, I, and I think that's also, I think, why it works for the audience, because it has a sort of like authenticity to it, because I don't pay attention to the YouTube algorithm. I don't I don't really care how many people watch it. I just do it because it's fun for me. 10 million views later of a grilled cheese with chorizo. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so according to a Seattle Times article about you, it says, I quote, fans claim Kenji can't be stumped. Do you remember the last time you were stumped? I can't remember a specific instance, but I'm certainly stumped. I mean, I think, you know, one of the important lessons to learn that I've learned, I guess, since college in the last 20 years or so is it's better to say when you don't know something and it's better to say, hey, I don't know this. Here's an expert who probably does or here's a book where you can probably find the answer. Like pretending things, I think, is the is something I used to do when I was very young and didn't want to ever be wrong about things and didn't want to ever appear like I didn't know things. But I certainly get stumped all the time. But I think the difference is just like, I think my attitude is just like, if I don't know something, I'll just say I don't know it. The same Seattle Times piece I just referenced had a headline that read, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is Seattle's most powerful influencer and its most reluctant <laughs> one. What makes you reluctant? Yeah. I don't know. The, the answer is probably in the art. <laughs> I didn't write the headline. <laughs> I mean, I'm reluctant. I guess reluctant because I don't, I mean, I don't see myself as an influencer, right? It's like, I didn't even really, I hadn't, hadn't heard of that term before a couple of years ago or like a year ago. It's difficult because as a real person, you don't ever think of yourself as anything other than a real person with like just real opinions and real feelings. And I'm just a normal person person. I wake up in the morning, I go downstairs in my underwear, I make toast for my daughter. You know, it's like I do normal person stuff. And it's just like some more people happen to like care about what I think about food than other people. So so it's hard. You know, I, I think it is it's, it's that I, I don't consider myself an influencer, but other people do. And I guess that's what's important. And I guess that's what defines you as a, you know, as a so-called influencer is that, is that your opinion influences people. And so, you know, the difficult part for me and a lot of stuff, a lot of what I've had to learn through the years is exactly how much impact my word has on different subjects. I can't pretend like the way I used to interact on Twitter like 10 years ago is the same as the way I interact on, well, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but the way I used to interact with the world 10 years ago is different from how I have to interact with the world now because my word has more of an effect than it used to. I'm happy for my word to have like a positive effect on people and for my word to help shine lights on good businesses or good people or for my writing to help people cook better to help feed their families better like that's all great i love that at the same time it's like if i ever say anything negative or if i say something that can be interpreted as negative then that has an equal and sometimes even more powerful negative effect because people love to focus on the negative stuff you mean people interpret things as negative these days <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it's very easy to say things that you think are harmless or that you think are only reflecting your opinion, but then you find out, oh crap, like people completely took that the wrong way. Or my word also reflects on like my, even though I have no formal business arrangement with my former restaurant or Serious Eats anymore, for example, people still associate me with those places. And so my word has an effect on people who work at those places as well. So I have to just kind of always be aware of that. And that makes things nice in some ways, but also difficult. Sure. Let's talk the walk. Why this book and why now? Why this book is because, so I mean, the walk is by far the most used piece of equipment in my kitchen. I've had the same one since college. This one pan that I cooked with in college. I cooked with when I was living with roommates. I cooked when I had dinner parties. You know, I cooked when it was just me and my wife. And now I cook like for my family with it. It's just this one pan that I've found to be extraordinarily versatile, easy, quick, you know, and something that I think once you learn the basic techniques really sort of expands your repertoire of what you can do at home, especially as far as quick and easy and relatively healthy meals go. Um, the reason why now is mainly because it, it actually, I, there was going to be a walk chapter in my first cookbook in the food lab. And, you know, that book, we were at some point 
contemplating releasing it as a two volume set. And then my publishers were kind of like, well, like we don't really want to sell like a $75 or hundred dollar two volume set from a first, first time author. We're, we're going to have to cut this down. And so we ended up cutting out like half the material from that book, including a big walk chapter. And so when I started writing this, the follow-up book, which was going to be volume food lab volume two, it was going to include a walk chapter, but it was kind of this kind of, you know, a hodgepodge of a bunch of different cuisines and different techniques because basically everything that didn't fit into the first book, which was mainly just a Western American classic stuff, you know, the meatloaf and mac and cheese and spaghetti with meatballs, that kind of stuff was what was in the first book. And the second book was just this mix of stuff. And so I didn't really know how to start organizing it, but I just, so I basically just started writing and I started writing with the walk chapter because it was the one that I was seemed easiest and I was most passionate about, and, you know, and I had budgeted for maybe like 200 pages or so in the walk chapter. And I got like way past 200 pages and I wasn't even done with the introduction and stir fries. And, and so I, I hadn't touched on like pan frying or braising or steaming or noodles or rice or any of that stuff. And so um, I just basically told my editor, hey, let's just write a book on the walk, right? There are lots of good cookbooks on, they're good walk cookbooks and there are good cookbooks specifically on like regional Asian cuisines that are wonderful, but I don't know of any book right now that's like specifically written for a Western audience who came with sort of my background experience, which is growing up in the US, being exposed to mainly sort of Asian American food, Chinese American cuisine, but then also having a very strong interest in sort of more regional things. But so the, the book, you know, it doesn't focus, it's not a Sichuan cookbook, it's not a Japanese cookbook, it's not a Cantonese cookbook, it's not a Chinese American cookbook. It's really like, these are dishes that I'm familiar with and I love either from growing up in the US or from my travels. I think the selection of techniques and recipes in there is one that would speak very much to an American audience who has a sort of similar interest in Asian cuisine like I do. That's how I selected the subject matter in there. And as for why now, it's just because this is when I happen to write it. <laughs> I hope it's the right place at the right time. We'll see. I'm sure it will be. I have a note in parentheses I made for myself that says, if walk brands were smart, they'd be ready for what you're about to do for the walk industry. <laughs> Share some common... Look, be, people all the time knowing my background asked me, oh, I need to get a new pot or pan or we're getting married, which we register for. And, or someone's like, oh, I need to buy a new walk. But I'm always like, you don't need a walk because they're looking to get like <laughs> an all clad stainless steel walk, which you definitely don't need an all clad stainless correct. steel walk. And I'm like, use a big <laughs> saute pan, but I'm starting to get more educated and into the walk by, by watching you and, and I'm super psyched to dig into this book, but share some common misconceptions about walks and how you may debunk them in the book. So I think the, the biggest misconception about walks, and it's a totally understandable one, is that you need a very powerful gas burner to cook in one. And I think this misconception, at least in, you know, in my experience and what I think generally applies to Western audience, I think this misconception comes from the fact that most of my experience and most of our experience with, I say, Chinese cooking comes from eating at Chinese restaurants. We have this weird misconception, you know, similarly to how I think a lot of people, when they think Japanese food, they think of sushi and ramen, which is not what people eat at home. Those are specifically restaurant dishes. And so similarly with wok cooking, I think people think of like Chinese restaurant style dishes, many of which, and particularly Hong Kong and Cantonese style stuff that was in, that was the first wave of Chinese restaurants in the US. And now there's, of course, a lot more regional Chinese cuisine that doesn't require those kinds of high heat cooking situations. But a lot of the dishes that we are familiar with require high heat. And so part of it, I think, is realigning your expectations, because there are literally like hundreds of millions of people in the world who cook in a wok every day, and they feed their families with a wok every day, and they just have regular home burners. Not everybody in China has a Chinese restaurant burner. And the same way that like the steak that I cook at home or the stew that I cook at home is going to be different from the steak that I get at Peter Luger because I don't have a 1600 degree broiler and an aging room, you can reset your expectations for wok cooking in the same way. And it's and again, like it's not to say that one is better than the other, or that you cook, you can't possibly cook restaurant-style food at home because you can, but you also have to realize that there's this whole world and wealth of wok techniques and recipes that are more based on things that are much more realistic for home cooks as opposed to something like dry-fried beef chow fun, which is a high-skill, difficult recipe that works best when you have a very powerful gas burner. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about conceptions about woks is that they can be very used very well for home cooking. You know, another one is that woks are only used for stir fries, which is very much not the case. Stir fries, of course, are good in a wok and woks are the best tool for stir frying because stir fries were designed to be cooked in woks. So you can get flavors 
out of a wok that you can't get out of a Western skillet I mean, for a couple of reasons. But first of all, like by virtue of the fact of, of how wide it is and the way food gets tossed around in it and food heats differently than it does in a Western skillet where it's much more about surface contact, whereas in a stir fry, it's much more about getting it in the air, passing it through like hot columns of air, getting things to steam off very quickly so that you cook really rapidly. And you can do that much better in a wok than you can in a Western skillet. The reason I said you shouldn't get a stainless steel all-clad wok, not just because it's ridiculous to pay that much money for a wok and or to give your money to you know, like a, a giant Western brand like that for something where, you know, a traditional Chinese or Japanese carbon steel wok is going to be much cheaper and going to, to someone who I think uh, has a bigger stake in, in, in this style of cooking. But part of it is also because in stainless steel, you literally can't get some of the flavors that you can get from cooking in well-seasoned carbon steel. So stainless steel is designed to be scrubbed clean and shiny after each use. And so the, a lot of the flavors that you get from cooking in a wok come from the seasoning on the inside of the carbon steel. So the black oxide and some of the polymers that form when you heat oils. So, you know, a well-used wok will be completely black on the black and shiny and glossy on the inside. And if you taste side by side something in a cooked in a well seasoned carbon steel wok versus a shiny stainless steel wok, you do everything identically. They look the same, but the carbon steel wok has a very distinct sort of part of that is that wok hay flavor, that smoky flavor that you can't get out of stainless steel. My advice for buying a wok is to get a carbon steel wok, a flat bottom, about 14 inches wide. And that's what I use. That's a reasonable wok to cook for you know a family of four or sometimes to cook dinner, big, bigger dinner parties and batches. But I, I don't think you need much more than that. And you should be able to find that at a Chinese restaurant supply shop for 40 to 50 bucks. And like I said, I've had mine for I think 22 years now, something like that. And when I bought mine, I think it was 20 bucks. That's not a bad lifespan, not not bad use out of a $20, a dollar a year for my cooking equipment. I was going to say that's incredible knowledge and information. I was going to say probably within five minutes after completing this discussion, I was going to go online to order one, but now I'll likely get in the car and go to a restaurant supply yeah. store in Chinatown <laughs> for sure. Thank you for that. So Kenji, all of our guests here on Beyond the Plate give back in different ways. It's one of the main reasons why we started the podcast. I always say to everybody who listens, chefs and food personalities, are way, restaurateurs are way more than a dish you see on their plate. They give back beyond and they can do a different event or donation, you know, every night of the week, you know, if the, the finances allowed them to. So we'd like to share what you all are up to outside of that. And I know you've been active probably with a number of projects and organizations, but the, the most extraordinary thing to me is what you have been doing or are doing with No Kid Hungry, Share Our Strength. And I will give you a heads up. I am on their leadership council. So oh, cool. thank you for everything you do. But I would love for you to jump into that as to why you decided, well, first, why you decided to use your platform for good and then for bringing attention to No Kid Hungry. I mean, why I decided to use my platform for good, I mean, <laughs> good as opposed to use it for evil. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think part, I guess maybe good as a social good as opposed to personal gain. I think that the two can go hand in hand, of course, but, you know, but I think again, it goes back to it's like I've had a lot of career success and I, I don't need to scrape as much money out of the system as I can. I'm a pretty outspoken anti-capitalist lefty guy. And I think it's unfortunate that we do need charity to address some of the big issues that we have in this country and around the world right now. But for now, given the system we have, I think charitable work is among one of the best ways to address the issues we have. When you find out that in this country alone, there are tens of millions of kids that are food insecure, that go to school without breakfast, or especially through the pandemic, parents that are getting out of work, that are losing their jobs. It's just shocking that in one of the largest economies in the world, that there are kids that go hungry. So I think the work that No Kid Hungry does, and both the work they do nationally in, in ad advocacy and also partnering with more local organizations and helping fund local organizations is super important. I think I initially set a goal to raise 5,000 bucks and we blew past it really fast. Yeah, that was that was the initial goal. And then I think when we blew past that in like the first couple days, they were like, oh, maybe you should change it to like 20,000 bucks. I was like, okay. And so I think now, I, I don't even remember what our goal is now, but I think we're at uh, like 140 something thousand bucks. And it's all through donations. Like on my YouTube channel, my video link is my video link. Like the first links under my video are always to donate to No Kid Hungry. I advocate for it. Whenever I do like appearances and things that normally come with like some kind of honorarium or whatever, I, I just ask people to donate it to No Kid Hungry instead. Partly because it's good to do and also because it saves me from having to like do the taxes <laughs> and all the all the paperwork. That's funny. Well, thank you for all that. That's incredible. I always say to, to everybody, give it you can, whether it's your voice, your dollars, your 
time. It's all, they're all incredibly yeah. important. You don't have to have all the money in the world to do good. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then I will close it out. What did you have for dinner last night? Last night, what did we have? Oh, last night. So last night my, my daughter had a violin lesson when we came home late. So we had Bucatini alla matriciana, quick 10 minute pasta dish. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. When the garlic and ginger hits the hot oil in the wok. Nice. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Old banana peels. <laughs> Most overrated kitchen utensil or gadget. Slow cooker. Most underrated kitchen utensil or gadget. Mortar and pestle. Name one of your favorite snacks in your pantry. I'm not really a snacker. <laughs> My favorite snacks are salt and vinegar chips, though, if we're going like packaged snacks. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, all right, let's close it out. We've rarely done this closing, but I'm going to close it out with one more kind of a rapid fire round. And that okay. is, what three reasons do you credit for your success? Three reasons I credit for my success. Having a very supportive family, like my wife and my children. Or my, my son's too old to be supportive, but my wife and my daughter are very supportive of me and my career. Being lucky, like being in the right place at the right time and just having it, being lucky that my the things that I'm interested and passionate about happen to be things that other people are also interested in reading about. So I consider it very lucky that I get to work in a field that I love and that there's enough financial success involved in it that I can do what I love and have people come enjoy it. And, and then I think third would be not focusing on like having a perfect career and and not focusing on where I'm going to be in life 10 years from now and really for focusing on happiness over career. And I'm not sure that's generally like, I don't mean this is generally good advice to give people because I consider myself extraordinarily lucky and I don't know that everyone is going to find that same luck. So I don't want to make people feel bad for not being able to follow their passions. And those are the things that I did and I'm lucky enough that they worked out for me. Well, I think that's great. Uh, same page about the five year from now, 10 year from now. I say, I, whenever I get asked that question, because my career path is pretty unique, I always say, if you ask me that every single year from like the year I graduated college, where would you, where, where do you want to be five years from now? It would have never, ever been whatever I would have said. Oh yeah. Like completely different. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Again, uh, huge fan. I love your point of view on your point of view. How's that? <laughs> I think it's incredibly interesting and uh, please keep, keep having fun, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks, Kenji. All right. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Kenji Lopez-Alt. Find more on him at KenjiLopezAlt.com. To learn more about No Kid Hungry, go to NoKidHungry.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast to Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen. Ah!